Around the time that Daniel was being thrown to the lions in the Old Testament, around that time in history, over in China, there lived one of the most brilliant military warriors of all time. Uh, This fellow's name was Sun Tzu, and his book, entitled The Art of War, is one of the oldest and most successful books on military strategy ever written. It's a book basically on how to win a war, And even today, some 8,000 years later, many of its tactics are still taught in military colleges all over the world. So how do you win a war? Well, perhaps Sun Tzu's most famous advice is quite simply, know your enemy. Know your enemy. If you know your enemy, he wrote, quote, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. Know your enemy. Now, I say all this this morning because if you want to summarise what this section of Revelation is all about, know your enemy. That's not a bad summary. Because in this morning's section, God wants to tell the seven churches of Asia to whom Revelation was originally written, God wants to tell them that the persecution that they are going through at the hands of the Roman Empire at the time God wants to tell them that behind their Roman persecution, in fact, lies another enemy. Behind their persecution, in fact, lies an enemy even more sinister than the Roman emperor. Behind their persecution lies a very, very determined enemy who has indeed been waging war against God's people ever since the beginning of time. An enemy who you and I need to know about as well. An enemy described for us in the vision that John sees in chapter 12. Verse 1, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. Now, I'd actually like to pause just for a brief moment on that opening phrase. It's a phrase that alerts us to the fact that we are about to read a very significant vision within the context of the book. The word sign that is used there, this is the first time it's actually been used in the entire book. A sign, well, you know what a sign is. Signs tell you things, don't they? Signs convey a message, which in one sense all the visions in the book of Revelation do. But the fact that now this one is singled out and highlighted as a sign, a great and wondrous one at that, it's singling to us that we're about to see a very key lesson in the book. Now, there's another clue that this is a key lesson in the book because the phrase kicks off what now becomes quite a different cycle of sevens within the book of Revelation. See, up until now, every section we've looked at, we've pretty obviously counted down through seven distinct things, haven't we? We've had the seven letters to the seven churches. We've had the seven seals on the scroll. We've had last week the seven trumpets being blown. Next week, we'll be back to seven bowls of wrath being poured out. In each case, seven things have been very obviously and methodically numbered through. That doesn't happen in chapters 12 to 14. There is no deliberate countdown of seven things. But yet the chapters have seven things in them. They actually have seven visions scattered through them. The first vision kicks off here in verse 1 and it goes for the rest of the chapter. But then every time you skip to a new vision, John repeats a quite specific phrase. And then I saw. And then you get the next vision. And then I saw, and then you get the next vision. 
Unfortunately, our translations, I have no idea why, they don't always translate the words the same way. Uh, but in the original, they are. Very distinctive phrase. And then I saw, and then I saw, as these chapters systematically work their way through seven visions. But it's different to the other sevens. It's not nearly as, as obvious. It's much more subtle. They're not numbered off the way the others were. Why? Well, I think it's because, again, we're being signalled that this is a key section of the book. Uh, just the fact that it is a different sort of layout of sevens, it, it's highlighting, it's, it's drawing attention to it. And this morning, I, uh, I want to suggest that it's because there's a very key lesson on view here. And for that reason, I just want to contain ourselves to the vision in chapter 12. Uh, I'll jump very briefly into some of the other visions in 13 and 14, uh, but we'll actually get to them in our growth groups that are working through Revelation as well. This morning, really, for the sake of time, for the sake of clarity, it's mainly chapter 12 that I want us to camp down in because it turns out to be a very important vision. A greater wondrous sign appeared in heaven, verse 1. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to your earth. This dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth that he might devour her child the moment it was born. Okay, these opening verses introduce us to the three key figures of the vision that's going to occupy the rest of the chapter. We've got a pregnant woman, we've got the child she's about to give birth to, and we've got a dragon. Again, the fact that we've been told this is a sign I think the text is inviting us in to think a little bit more specifically about this vision, about who might be represented by these three characters. Let's start with the dragon. He's clearly the most sinister. I wonder who he's meant to be. Well, it's actually pretty obvious because Revelation tells us, verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. Okay, dragon equals Satan. Interestingly, he actually gets two names there, doesn't he? Both of them tell us a little bit about him. The word devil, that, that, that's the word for a foul-mouthed slanderer. That's his name, that's his nature. Loves to smear people's uh, reputation. Loves to cast aspersions about you. Nothing the devil likes more than bad-mouthing you. The second word, Satan, is related, but it's a little different. Satan means adversary. It was actually used back then in the law courts. Uh, the Satan was the prosecutor. If you watch Law and Order on telly, the Satan was, is sort of like the district attorney. He's the one who presses charges. He's the one standing in the courtroom trying to prove that you're guilty. You actually get a picture of him in operation in the next verse, verse 10. The accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night. See, there he is. He's in God's court, a courtroom. He's, he's accusing us. He's pointing the finger. He's slandering us. He's deceiving us. And then he's accusing us before God, trying to get us convicted for being guilty. That's the dragon. Let's move on to someone a little more pleasant. What about the child? Again, bit of an easy one, this. Pretty obviously Jesus. Verse 5 is the big clue. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. 
Okay, Ruling with an iron scepter, that's a quote straight out of Psalm 2. It's a psalm all about the Christ. It's all about God's king. It's a psalm that has already been quoted before in Revelation, back in chapter 2, quoted in reference to Jesus. The child equals Jesus. Okay, we're on a bit of a roll now. Um, what about the woman? This one's a little more subtle because, you know, you look at the woman in the vision and you say, well, okay, the kid's Jesus, so this is his mum, must be Mary. Look a bit closer, it's probably not. That's because at the start she's wearing the sun and the moon and a crown of 12 stars. It's a weird little outfit. But it's an echo of another dream which Joseph, that's Joseph in his amazing Technicolor dream, that Joseph had back in Genesis 37. He also had a dream which combined all those things of the sun and the moon and 12 stars. And in that dream it was a symbol of his family, Israel. Sounds like the woman isn't so much Mary, but a symbol for Israel. And if she is Israel and the child is Jesus and the dragon is Satan, you put it all together, you roll it all up, and the, the vision now sort of in broad fashion clicks into making a lot of sense. This is a vision about Satan as the enemy of Christ and of his people. This is a vision about Satan as the enemy of Christ and the enemy of Christ's people. So think about it in broad outline. Out of Israel comes the Christ, Jesus. Satan is hell-bent on destroying him, tries to kill the Christ, but the Christ is taken up to heaven. Satan chases him into heaven, no luck there, gets kicked out of heaven, which is something we'll come back to in a minute. But after he's been kicked out of heaven, the now enraged dragon goes after the woman. She's protected. And so now the dragon goes after her offspring. Christians. Look at verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey Christ's, God's command and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, friends, here's the point in the vision that would have started to make a whole lot of sense to those first century Christians to whom Revelation was first written. Because remember their context, it's written to Christians, it's written to people seeking to obey God's command and hold to the testimony of Jesus. It's written, it's written to those who are suffering terrible persecution at the Roman emperor. The woman, Israel, Jews, remember from a couple of weeks back, they're actually protected. They get to pay a temple tax. They don't have to worship the emperor. Christians do. And if they refuse to, they are either torn to pieces by animals, tortured, thrown into prison. Here's the thing, though. What the vision is telling them is that even though they are being persecuted at the hands of Roman soldiers, what the vision is telling them is that it is actually Satan who is behind it. This is a vision telling them that their real enemy is Satan himself. That becomes even more obvious in the next couple of visions in chapter 13. We don't have time to get into them this morning. Hopefully you'll have fun in growth groups doing that. In the next chapter, John sees two beasts, each of which the dragon uses to make war against the woman's offspring. Pretty clearly that the beasts represent the Roman Emperor, the Roman religion with all its priests forcing people to worship the Emperor. 
But all the time it's driving this lesson home to the seven churches that behind the trouble they are going through, behind it, is Satan himself. It's a vision to tell the seven churches that their struggle is not primarily against Rome. As Christians, their struggle is primarily against Satan himself. As the Apostle Paul put it to the Ephesian church, who, remember, is one of the seven churches, the Apostle Paul wrote this in his letter to them. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what this section is all about. Know your enemy. And you in the seven churches, your struggle is not primarily against Rome. Your struggle is primarily against Satan. And maybe if we were to pause here for a moment, uh, it's helpful for us to be aware that, that, it's, that he's actually our enemy as well. We're caught up in this struggle because if you're a Christian, you make an appearance in today's vision. You appeared there in chapter 12, verse 17, the bit where it says that the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Are you seeking to obey God's commands? Are you seeking to hold to the testimony of Jesus? Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's you described in that verse. And okay, your experience of the war may not be exactly the same as the experience of the seven churches of Asia. But nevertheless, a vision like this is alerting us to the fact that we're actually locked into the same struggle against that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. It's no accident that when you sit down to pray, a million and other things pop into your head. It's no accident that on nights that growth group is on, that they're the nights that you especially feel tired and you can think of a million and one excuses why you're not going to go this week. None of it's an accident, friends. If you're a follower of Jesus, there are forces of evil that hate you and want to see you go down. For the dragon is enraged and has gone off to make war against the followers of Jesus. Which sounds fierce. But we also need to be aware that this dragon might be enraged, but he has in fact been conquered. For the big point where this vision is leading to is not only for the seven churches to know who their real enemy is, it's for them to know that their real enemy has been defeated. And that lesson hits its strides in the next few chapters, in chapters 13 and 14. As, as, as John sees the visions of the Lamb of God standing on Mount Zionai and declaring again that he has conquered Satan. But again, we'll see that in our growth groups. But again, in one sense, you don't need to because it's already here in chapter 12. Come back with me to verse 7. And there is war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back but he wasn't strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. Picture it. Massive battle going on in heaven. Dragon's not strong enough, thrown out of heaven. It is a picture of the fact that in the place that matters most, in heaven before God, the battle has been finished. The line of Judah has triumphed. Here the devil has been defeated. And how was he defeated? 
Well, it actually all gets explained now in a voice that comes from heaven in verses 10 and 11. Always good to listen to voices in Revelation. They're usually explaining something in the vision. Look at verse 10. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accused him before our day and night has been hurled down. Okay, see, that's what we've just seen in the vision. The battle in heaven, the devil getting chucked out. But look at the next bit, because the next bit's going to explain what all that means. Because the real battle, that's not a battle with swords and spears and fire-breathing dragons. That, that's all the symbol. Here's how the devil really does get beaten. Verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That is a very critical verse. Satan, the accuser, has been kicked out of heaven. He has no power before God whatsoever now by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. In other words, Satan has been stripped of his power through the death of Jesus and by people who testify to the death of Jesus, which makes complete sense in what we've already discovered about our enemy. Because remember Satan, he's the slanderer, he's the accuser, he's the one who loves to point the finger at you and say how bad you are. You can't let them into heaven, they're guilty. But the fact that Jesus has made himself a sacrificial lamb, the fact that as we saw in chapter 4, the lion of Judah is the lamb who was slain, the fact that he stood in for us, the fact that he took our place, the fact that he took our death for our sins, totally cuts the legs from under Satan. He can accuse you till he's blue in the face. Makes no difference. Because when you're a Christian, your punishment's been taken. Forgiven. Wiped clean. The accuser has nothing to say. And all we have to do is claim the victory that the Christ has won. Are you beginning to see why this chapter is a greater wondrous sign? You're beginning to see why this is such a crucial vision in the context of the book. Are you in fact beginning to see what, what this vision is revealing about Jesus and why it is so important for the seven churches to know this about Jesus? John is writing to first century Christians who are being heavily persecuted by the Roman emperor for following Jesus. They're being persecuted in such a way as to try and make them uh, be disloyal to Jesus. And here in the vision, God is showing them that their real enemy, their ultimate enemy, it's not Rome, it's Satan. And here the vision is encouraging them with the news that he's being defeated through the blood of the lamb. And therefore the worst thing you could possibly do is to not stay loyal to the lamb. The thing we must do is hold firm to our testimony of the lamb. Because although the Satan might be defeated, doesn't mean he's not dangerous. I mean, verse 12, in fact, says that he's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. That's a reference, a nod for what we're going to discover in the rest of the book because as we discover in chapter 20, this defeated Satan, in come time, he will be completely removed altogether. But until then, there's still a war waging, not, not so much to achieve victory. He's already been defeated. It's not so much to achieve victory, but a war is waging as he tries to lure us away from the winning side. Verse 13. 
as Satan throws everything he can at the offspring of the woman, of the woman so as to drive a wedge between them and the lamb. And here in Revelation, John is calling the seven churches to arms. Guys, know there's a war going on. Know your enemy. Know he's been defeated. So stand firm. Do not love your lives as so much as to shrink even from death. It's a great word to the seven churches of Asia. It's a great word to us. Arthur was a member of a church I went to once. Arthur wasn't his real name, but that's the word. I will call him Arthur because the podcasts of these talks pop up everywhere. Arthur was one of the really high-profile people in church. He perhaps would have led the meeting this morning, headed up a growth group. Arthur also had an excellent, though very demanding job. Because he was such a competent person, he did really well at his job. But that meant that he now had less time for ministry. It was an important job, but it had long hours, and it now meant that he had to miss the occasional church meeting. Wasn't able to run a growth group anymore. Last I heard, Arthur is top of the heap in his profession. He's not a Christian. Ruth was a member of a Bible study group I used to go to in Sydney. Ruth is not her real name, but that's what we'll call her. She was one of those people who just exuded enthusiasm, keen for Jesus, always on the lookout for other people. Her only deep wish was that she could have a boyfriend. She just used to get so lonely. Finally, a fellow took an interest in her, but he wasn't a Christian. No problem, we'll just be friends until he gets converted. Last I heard, Ruth is living with him. She has disowned Jesus. Tony's a bloke I heard about just the other day. He doesn't live here in Dubbo. Tony's not his real name, but that's what we'll call him. Tony would be about my age, uh, been a Christian for years been a really keen Christian, uh, a really generous Christian. Lots and lots of ministries, lots and lots of missionaries have been supported by him. A few months back, Tony's wife left him. He's now totally embittered against God. Wants nothing to do with Jesus whatsoever. It's just a nonsense. Doesn't work. I hate the war that the devil wages. He knows exactly our weak points. He knows what buttons to push. And he is filled with fury. For his time is short. He has been defeated by the blood of the Lamb and he will try anything to get you away from Jesus. And sometimes his attack will be a full frontal persecution like during the Roman Empire, during the first century. But sometimes his attack will be harder to spot. It'll come in the guise of peer pressure, because you want to be popular. It'll come in the guise of anger and bitterness when life doesn't go your way. It'll come in the guise of endless distractions when life does go your way. 
Open your eyes to the wall. Know the enemy. Know especially that he has been defeated. Stand firm. Father, thank you that your son, the Lion of Judah, is the lamb who was slain so that Satan might have nothing to accuse us of again. Thank you that through Jesus' death and resurrection we have been forgiven and washed clean, that there is no condemnation because of Jesus. Father, help us to so strongly know and understand that, that nothing would ever drive a wedge between us and Jesus. Thank you for lovingly warning us again this morning of the war. Thank you for helping us to know our enemy. Thank you for reminding us that he has been defeated. Thank you for Jesus. May we never move from him. Amen.